0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Unmasking a Murder and to episode three of the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell series. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator and host of Unmasking a Murder, a podcast about the psychology of a true crime. This episode, which first aired on July 14th of 2020 on YouTube, was the first one recorded after the bodies of 16 year old Tylee and seven year old JJ were discovered. In this episode, we take a look at the possible motives behind these murders. What, if anything, mental illness had to do with it, and why these children's deaths touch so many of us. Hi, it's Dr. Joni Johnston. As always, thanks for all your comments and insights for previous episodes. I got a lot of encouragement from so many of you who watch this channel and who read my Psychology Today blogs, just saying, hey, now that the kids have been found, please comment on the Chad Daybell, Laurie Bello Daybell case. And I have to say, I was so resistant to doing that. And I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized that even though I don't know Any of these individuals personally. I have a 16 year old daughter. Tylee was 16 when she was missing. I I have a daughter that's about Tylee's age. And it's tough, even from a distance, when you follow a case. I think all of us want the best case scenario. And we look at a case and we look at missing kids. And even though in our hearts, we are scared and we're concerned and we feel like there's really no indication these kids are still alive, there's still that spark of hope. And I know I said in a previous episode that I would be so happy to come on here and say, see, I'm a forensic psychologist. I had no idea. I really thought the kids were not going to be, you know, not going to be found alive. And I was so wrong. And, and yet I think it doesn't take a forensic psychologist to know that just the behavior of Chad and Lori all the way from November until the kids were found on June the 9th in Chad Daigle's backyard, there is really no indication that the kids were alive. And once Lori was arrested, I mean, this is not somebody with an extensive criminal history. It's hard to imagine that she would not at some point come clean if the kids were in some hidden place, which she claimed was the case for, you know, for several weeks. So anyway, my heart goes out to all of you who followed this case so closely and were really rooting for Tylee and JJ to be found because I was right there with you. And I just was, again, so hopeful. And my heart even more goes out to this family because when you look at the research on grieving children's deaths you you really find a lot of interesting things and one of the things you find is that people have to people who love them have to grieve not only the bright spirits that they were but also all of the events that they'll never experience it's almost like you're taking and grieving this the life of this child but you're also grieving the life of this teenager and young adult and adult and parent and grandparent etc and so you know, there's that part of it and there's so many other parts to it, which is having family members have to grieve these children who are lost, but also the the way that they died. And also the fact that it was a family member potentially who well, at least family member who's been accused of perpetrating this, a mom. So it's just been such a tragic case all the way around. And I've seen so many tragic cases and this is certainly one that has been really difficult to deal with in terms of just looking at all the factors in it. So I hope that justice is swift. I hope that justice is in proportion to the criminal activities if people are convicted. But I also know that no amount of justice is never equal. No justice ever makes up for the fact that people are lost. And that every death, particularly when it relates to murder, the victim is not only the people who were killed, but it's all the people who loved them and all the people who cared about them. So anyway, my heart goes out to those of you who have followed this case so closely and being so invested in it, and because I know it's, it's difficult to think about the ending being so tragic. There have been a lot of questions I've gotten about this case. And I always make it clear and I'll make it clear now that I have not interviewed or evaluated Lori or Chad. So I don't have any inside information in terms of their mental state. All I can do is talk about possible mental health issues, if there are any, which there may not be. In terms of defense, I talked in an earlier episode about, I think it was the first one about the the difference between religious delusions, which are often the result of a severe mental illness, and what extreme religious beliefs look like. And one of the things that I was saying, and we'll just briefly review here, is that really the biggest difference, well, there are two biggest differences. One is that it's the origin. So, an extreme religious belief could be a result of being involved in a certain group. It could be being under the influence of a certain person. It could be being involved in a certain church or a certain cult or whatever. So, the origin is outside of yourself when you're talking about a religious, an extreme religious belief that may seem delusional if you're not a part of that group or that pair or that church or whatever. But if you're part of that, because so it's often a shared belief which is the other difference. Somebody who has a delusion, a religious delusion, and religious delusions are actually relatively common when you're talking about severe mental illnesses. Between 30 to 40% of delusions as a result of a severe mental illness have a religious component. So it's not uncommon for somebody who has a severe mental illness to have a religious delusion. But again, the difference is differences are, one, they come from inside. They're a result from a mental illness, and then they're not typically shared with other people. Now, there have been a couple of illnesses that have been diagnosed in the past. One is called folia due, and that essentially is a French term that means shared madness. And that was recognized back, gosh, in the late 19th century or, tw- or maybe early 20th century. When in these very, very rare situations, and they almost always occurred in these circumstances, the individuals were extremely close. About a third of the time, it was siblings, about a third of the time, it occurred between a parent and a child, and about a third of the time, between a husband and wife or partners. The other typical hallmark of this was that the individuals seem to be very isolated. So it's almost like a cult of two in a way. Like you have individuals who are way out in the country or way or just isolated socially or isolated because of certain disabilities or whatever. And they're just together, the two of them all the time. And typically what happens is one individual might have a severe mental illness and over time the other person who is more vulnerable, begin to kind of take on those beliefs. In the latest DSM-5, which is our our meaning mental health professionals, are kind of like Bible in terms of diagnosing people. Folia do is no longer a diagnosis. It's been a, kind of put under the umbrella of delusional disorder. So it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but whenever we have a new version or a new update come out is you'll have all this research that has been collected over the past five years or 10 years or 20 years, whenever the last issue and the new issue comes out. And so people all get together and they go, okay, this doesn't really work or the research doesn't support it or, well, maybe it happens, but it's so rare, we can just stick it under here. So apparently in DSM-5, Folia adieu is so incredibly rare that it was it was really just stuck under delusional disorder in general. So it would be very unusual in this situation for us to think that Chad Daybell and Lori Valadable had folia ado not only because they're not isolated, but also because other people, in addition to Lori and Chad, shared these beliefs. Another mental illness has been raised, has been this idea of cat syndrome. Cat syndrome is not a disorder in and of itself, but it can be a symptom. And it's, again, another very, very rare symptom. And it oftentimes occurs with individuals who have had some kind of brain damage, either through a car accident or some kind of head injury, or as a function of Alzheimer's disease. It typically shows up in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s. We don't really know what causes it, but basically, the person begins to believe that a loved one is no longer that loved one. In other words, the person suffering from Capgras delusion recognizes that my wife or my husband or my daughter or my son, they look very similar. Almost exactly. And they say that they're my husband or wife or son or daughter and they live here, but they're not. They're just I can tell they're just they're not the same person. And so they develop this belief that this person is an imposter. And this can be, depending upon the circumstances, and again it's incredibly rare. It can't be dangerous as you can imagine. If you think somebody is basically pretending to be somebody that you love and you start wondering well what did you do with the real person it can be very dangerous. Now again this is a situation or syndrome that is very very rare and you don't start thinking that a lot of other people are not who they say they are. So one of the things that we know is that Chad Daybell and Lori Daybell were starting to say or believing allegedly that Lori's fourth husband, Charles Vallow, was a zombie that he had kind of been taken over by this spirit named Ned Schneider. That Tylee, the 17-year-old, Lori's 17-year-old daughter, was a zombie. Her spirit had been taken over. JJ had turned into a zombie. So that certainly is not consistent with Cap Ross syndrome. Delusional disorder, we talked about some of the severe mental illnesses, I think, in a previous video. There are a few severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and the manic phase of bipolar disorder where you see sometimes religious delusions. Again, those typically are not shared and they are always accompanied by other symptoms. So... There really is not any evidence from what I know and what I've read that would be consistent with any of these diagnoses, even though I know that Charles Vallow, Lori's fourth husband, was very concerned about her mental health, and understandably so because of some of the beliefs that she was sharing with him at the time. There's not enough evidence from the limited information that we know to say that this was likely um, a result of a severe mental illness. Other possible explanations from a psychological standpoint, and we'll see how all this plays itself out as things get further along in the criminal justice process. What about other diagnoses? So one of the things that I wanna be clear about and often am is that most violence, most criminal activity has nothing to do with no illness. About 4% of violent behavior, if you look at the studies, is directly related to somebody's severe mental illness. The likelihood, the odds are that this, these acts have nothing to do with mental illness. So then what could they be? Could Lori or Chad have some kind of personality disorder, such as psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder or severe narcissistic personality disorder that would make them more likely to be open to these activities. Now, let me say a couple of things about that. Number one, a personality disorder does not lead to criminal activity in and of itself. It's true that certain personality traits that are a part of personality disorder. So for example, if somebody is a psychopath, which is a much overused term. I think it's when you look at the, at the clinical definition of psychopathy, it's much narrower than a lot of times we think that it is. But if somebody truly meets the diagnostic criteria for psychopathy, then that person is going to, by definition, have a limited capacity for empathy, for remorse, for compassion. That person is going to be manipulative. This person is going to be self-serving. This person is going to engage in antisocial activities. So that personality disorder in and of itself would lend someone to being open to engaging in a lot of horrible activity. However, it's interesting because psychopathy doesn't just pop up when somebody is 40 or 45 or 50. Oftentimes you will see, even by adolescence, somebody who's engaging in a lot of Again, antisocial behavior, they will have a manipulative interpersonal style, they use people, it kind of becomes evident. They may or may not ever become criminals because there are people who are successful psychopaths who are CEOs and lawyers and doctors and whatever. But when you look at some of the personality traits, you will see that person has a limited ability to feel certain emotions and, and they are more likely to take advantage of other people in a lot of different respects. It's hard to say that Lori or Chad has this history because there are lots of people who've said that before 2018, particularly when you're talking about Lori, that Lori appeared to be a caring person. Charles Vallow, who was afraid for his life, again, Charles being Lori's fourth husband, who died in July of 2019 uh, at her brother's hands. Charles himself said, Lori was this amazing person. She was a great mom. She was a very devoted mom. And then all of a sudden in 2018, she started reading all these books and she changed. So it is very difficult to look at either Chad Daybell or Lori Daybell and immediately kind of go, oh, yes, there's this long history of fraud or this long history of criminal activity. Or So where, where does that leave us? from a psychological standpoint. One of the things that Melanie Gibb, who was Lori Vallow Daybell's best friend, has said on a couple of different interviews really struck me. One, A couple of things. One is that she said that she, that, that Lori Vallow said to her, on a couple of occasions that if chad daybell was satan he was a really good one and how i interpreted that was that and how melanie ultimately interpreted that was that lori desperately wanted to believe that chad daybell was this incredible spiritual clairvoyant who had all these answers and had a direct line to god and created these portals in her closet and could you know foretell the fact that the earth, earth was going to end, and she they were be married in a former life? But that deep down, she had her doubts, and I think that's true. I think I really wonder about that because it doesn't take—I was going to say a rocket scientist. <laughs> I guess I'll say a forensic psychologist to look and kind of start going. You know. When people are truly delusional, for example, all of their delusions don't typically serve them as well as these beliefs do. It seemed kind of interesting to me that all the people who became zombies were people who were getting in the way of Lori and Chad's relationship. And... I also wonder, I would like to know a lot more about Chad Debo because I am not an expert on near-death experiences by any stretch of the imagination, but my husband is very interested in that. He's done a lot of research and actually has a podcast looking at a lot of different things like this. I don't see any indication that really substantiates that Chad Debo ever had any near-death experiences. Most people that I've read about who have near-death experiences are people who have been in a coma for a week and they actually die, or people who have had a heart attack and they flatline and they are, you know, brought back to life. There's a woman who's a very, uh, um, I can't think of her name right this minute, but she speaks a lot. And she had a kayaking accident where she was under the water for 20 something minutes and was typically, was literally dead. And they don't know why that she survived without brain damage. But these are the kinds of experiences you typically see with near-death experiences. And I don't see that Chad Daybell has any documentation or there's any evidence he had anything like this. There's also an author that he um, published and She has come out and said that she had near death experiences. I don't know her history of near death experiences, but one of the interesting things that she said was that Chad published a couple of her books and that he was telling her about his visions, but he never mentioned to her ever that he had had near death experiences himself. And I'm telling you, if you have an experience as a psychologist, I think if you have an experience that is outside the norm, First of all, most people keep those experiences a secret. They're really afraid of what other people will think about them if they talk about it. So if you have had that experience, no matter what it is, if it's been an abduction experience that you believe, or it's been a satanic ritual abuse experience, or it's been just something that people might question, and you find somebody else who says, I've had this experience, I'm talking about it. You are going to share that experience because, oh my gosh, you have found a kindred spirit here. So it is very interesting to me that somebody close to him who, again, who shared her own experiences is now saying that she never heard anything like that from Chad Daybell until years later. So it really does kind of make me wonder. And I guess the other thing that makes me wonder is, I know there was one interview where Tammy Daybell, who is Chad Daybell's wife, who died suddenly and mysteriously in October of 2019, as you probably remember, that at one point she was playing some video game in Chad's view excessively. And he suddenly gets a spiritual vision from her grandmother. And the spiritual vision, basically, or message was was essentially saying, tell Tammy to quit playing the darn video game. That's pretty self-serving. I started looking at... Other couples, and this could be, you know, man and woman, it could be two men, it could be two women, whatever, at other people who have joined forces and ended ended up killing multiple people. And what's interesting about that is you typically will see one person who is the dominant person, at least initially, and this is the person who gets the murder ball rolling. And when you look at some of the some of the research on that what you'll find is that this dominant person is is kind of recruiting somebody and what they'll do is they'll they'll hook up with somebody that is vulnerable in some way and that vulnerability can be because this person is needy this person is lonely this person is mentally unstable this person may be intellectually impaired or bored or unhappy or depressed or whatever. And there's some vulnerability and there's almost um, a grooming process that goes on, or at least a testing process is probably a better word where the, the dominant person will start sharing his or her unusual beliefs and there'll be a testing period. So they'll talk about, you know, my beliefs about how people are inferior to these people. Or what, I'm, this is an example. And then they'll start saying how, you know, these people really, these people here who are inferior really are subhuman. And then down the road, as they're kind of doing this indoctrination, they'll talk about how these people who are inferior really deserve to be put out of their misery. And it's almost like a testing process. So it's kind of a safety mechanism, because if the person that you are testing out with these ideas, if they're horrified by this, Well, what do you do you pretend like it's a joke or you kind of shrug it off or you make light of it and then you either back up and start again or you find somebody else who you think is more open to your message one of the things that you see in these pairs of people who end up murdering more than one person is again, one person tends to be dominant from the beginning and there's somewhat of a grooming process, but there's something about this other person, again, that makes them vulnerable in some way. And the other thing that you find pretty consistently is that the two together do things that probably neither one of them would do on their own. So it's almost like, as Melanie Gibbs says about Chat and Lori, that there is um, a match and there's a spark and that it's only when the two of them together that things get lit and happens. All we know, looking at Chad and Lori and what people who have known them for years are saying is that it was only when Chad and Lori met and developed a relationship that things really began to spiral out of control and people begin to die The other thing that's interesting in talking about in talking about these kind of people who pair up with each other is that the dynamics can change over time so at the beginning you might have one dominant person you might have one person who's kind of reluctant or questioning but that can change and so you can either have the two of them become more equal partners where both individuals are equally participating or you can even sometimes see the dynamics flip which over time, one person began to take more of a leadership role. And one of the things that does seem to be the case is that no matter how things started with Lori and Chad, by the time Tylee and JJ were found, Lori and Chad were equal and willing participants. So it'll be interesting to see how things lined up for them, and to see if one of them ends up turning on the other. So, this concludes this episode of Unmasking your Murder. I love your thoughts um, and comments. If you like this channel, please like it, please share it. I don't know what you're supposed to say about this, but anyway, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.